The teachings in the book of Hebrews are among the most life-changing and life-affirming in the New Testament, including, as they do, Paul's ideas about faith, a completely new way of looking at the temple, and a path to the perfection of men and women by God keeping his promises to us through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. So glad to have you with us for Gospel Doctrine. As always, should you care to send a question to the program, please email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. The emails that I would like most to receive are your suggestions for, before the end of the year, our upcoming special episode. If you don't give me some ideas, then I will have to choose what I like best and you'll be stuck with it. So please send me those. Also, if you happen to be on Facebook, like our page, Gospel Doctrine, and you will be made aware of any special events, special episodes, and possibly any, even any live events that occur in the future. Okay, today we're going to jump right in because there's so much to cover, and I just want to be able to somehow do it justice. So by way of introduction to the book of Hebrews, we, what we covered last week was the first half of the book of Hebrews through chapter 6, but also a discussion about the authorship and the timing, the dating of the book of Hebrews. So if you're interested in that, go back to last week and listen. Also, this is really part two of a two-part discussion. So if you, uh, if you missed last week's episode, I would recommend beginning there. To describe briefly what we're going to talk about today, more than philosophical or theological treatise, I would like to describe the book of Hebrews as a journey. So we're going to go on a journey not of Paul describing his travels throughout the ancient Near East, but Paul describing the journey of the people of Israel from the Old Testament to the New. And this is really the place, the book of Hebrews is really the place where we shift our thinking as Christians, as we're reading through the Bible, this is where we shift our thinking from Old Testament to New Testament. Paul defines not only what it means to have a new covenant, which, and, and if you are not aware of what the meaning of testament is, it's covenant, but actually a New Testament, because testament has a slightly different meaning than covenant that we'll go over today. This is where we become believers in the New Testament, here in the book of Hebrews. So we're on a journey from Old to New Testament, and before we can go on this journey, we need to pack our bags. And one of the things that we're going to put in our baggage is an understanding. So we're not going to have the Old Testament scriptures in front of us, but they're referred to with almost every breath. So we need to put a few things in our memory before we begin so that we don't have to be continually flipping back and forth between scriptures. And one thing that we can't put in the bags, they should already be there, and if they're not, I'm going to try to do the best that I can, is a basic understanding of the story of the Old Testament. So first of all, understanding of the story of Adam and Eve and their fall, their children, Cain and Abel, the flood, and the way that Noah escaped the flood the man Abraham, and the covenant that God made with him, that he would give him a seed or a posterity as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the beach. And he would do that through Isaac, his son. The fact that Abraham was then asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. What did Isaac do? Uh, what did his sons Jacob and Esau do? What did Jacob's sons do? Uh, Joseph especially. Now, Joseph... Uh, 
asked that his bones, when he died, that his bones be carried out of Egypt in the future when the, when the Israelites returned to Canaan. And that return was accomplished through a man named Moses and his exodus. In the wilderness, Moses received a covenant, the Mosaic covenant, that God, that Yahweh would be the God of Israel, they would be his people, and he would be their God. And as a symbol of that covenant, God described to Moses a tabernacle, a tent, a temple, a mobile temple that he would build in the wilderness, the design of that temple. Now, in this, when they finally arrived after 40 years of wandering, there was a period where Israelites were ruled by judges. But this time culminated in the rule of two kings, David and Solomon. Solomon took this temple of this tabernacle of Moses and built a permanent version in Jerusalem that the Jews called the temple. After the time of David and Solomon, the, the kingship divided, the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which included Jerusalem. And then the, the prophets, the, these kings were almost universally wicked, and there were prophets for centuries that were trying to remind the Israelites of their covenants and spur them into repentance, which had varying levels of success, but usually failure. And eventually it was prophesied that they'd be carried away into exile. And the northern kingdom was conquered first by the Assyrians and then the southern kingdom by the, by the Babylonians. And they were all, the, all the Jews were removed from their homeland. But it was promised that one day they would be returned to their homeland in a glorious and spiritual reawakening. This is the basic, these are the broad strokes of the story of the Old Testament. In addition to understanding that, we want to put four specific chapters in our baggage. And the first one that I talk about is Numbers chapter 19. Now, you don't necessarily have to read it, although it wouldn't do you any harm. But this is the chapter where uh, God describes to Moses and Aaron how to create what is called the water of purification or the water of separation. Now, uh, one of the concepts surrounding the te- temple or the tabernacle of Moses was this idea of ritual purity or or ritual cleanliness. And if someone was unclean, it meant they couldn't approach the tabernacle and they were not part of the congregation of the people. It was very important to maintain ritual purity. And when it was lost, for example, when one touched a dead body, that it was important to regain it in the prescribed way. And the main way that one did this was through sprinkling by a priest, by a holy priest, of the water of purification. And then after a set amount of time, you would become clean. Now, in the, Old, uh, in the Old Testament, purity was not contagious. It was impurity that was contagious. So holiness was keeping yourself apart from impurity. Impurity was kind of like raw chicken. So if you imagine going into your kitchen and you have raw chicken in your hand, everything that raw chicken touches is going to become impure. And in order to clean something, you can't take a clean hand and touch something that's unclean and make it clean. You have to cleanse everything that has touched that raw chicken. And uh, so, I, and I mentioned raw chicken because it's notorious for having, you don't, you don't want the knife that you cut raw chicken with to then be used in the meal. Uh, it still has the, the germs that raw chicken may contain. So that's, that's my example. But the water of purification is the way by which people went from ritually impure to ritually pure. And it was created in a specific way. 
and it was also administered in a specific way by sprinkling. Now, sprinkling was also the action that was done with the blood of the, of the sacrifices that occurred on the altars of the temple. So purification from sin occurred through the blood of the sacrifice and purification, ritual purification, in order to even enter the temple in the first place, occurred through the water of purification. Why is this important? Well, the, uh, we'll get to that in the third chapter we'll add to our luggage. Second chapter we'll add is one we've talked about before, Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, we don't have to memorize the whole chapter or go through the whole chapter, but I'm going to read you three, uh, four verses. This is a poem written by Jeremiah about the, the prophesied return of Israel to its land. And so Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and I'll read this in the New International Version just to avoid the necessity of having to parse the text for you. So Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say one to one another, Know the Lord, because they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, and here's the key, for, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now this chapter is not just referred to, but actually quoted uh, in one case in its entirety, I'm sorry, not this chapter, but this poem, uh, is quoted one, once in its entirety and once partially in just in these few chapters that we'll study today in the book of Hebrews. So it's very important. And this is basically, the, this is the most forward-looking of any passage in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, to the New Testament. This is Jeremiah describing there will one day be a difference in the way that we worship, and here's what it looks like. And the first of all, everyone will actually, well, let me put it another way, the covenant of Moses didn't quite work. The Old Testament is really a history of all the failures of God to get through to his people. And what Jeremiah is prophesying is God's going to have a covenant one day that will actually work. And what's going to be different? People will, people will know God all the way down to their hearts. The law, instead of having to be written in tablets of stone, will be written on their hearts. And how will that happen? Because God will forgive his people. So that's the point of Jeremiah chapter 31. The third chapter that we'll talk about is Ezekiel 36. Now the idea here is quite similar. And it is that God will have another covenant. He's going to bring Israel back to their promised land. And he's going to do it under a new covenant. And when he does, they're going to, it's, this time, it's going to work. Now, uh, in this case, the, the passage is really just the, the entire second half of Ezekiel chapter 36. But God is saying, I'm going to, for my own name's sake, I'm going to bring Israel one day back to its promised land after they've been uh, scattered. Now, remember, Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon, so he's already part of the final exile. So he's saying, one day Israel will return. Uh, we'll start in verse 24. I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, 
and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now this is the water of purification. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now this is God saying, not only am I going to have a new covenant with you, but at your act, it's actually going to work. I'm going to write, I'm going to take your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So Ezekiel and Jeremiah are two prophets on either side of the exile. Jeremiah remained in the land of Israel after it was destroyed and kind of watched the decline. And Ezekiel was one of the first carried away into Babylon, and they independently prophesied the similar thing, this return, this glorious return, and a new covenant in which God would actually be effective in changing the hearts of his people through forgiving their sins. We're skipping to verse 31 of Ezekiel 36. Uh, Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes I do this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. So God is going to, in conjunction with bringing Israel back into its land, he's going to forgive them. So uh, the same message from Ezekiel and from Jeremiah, that God will create a new covenant, that he will change the hearts of Israel, he will do it for his own sake, and he'll do it through forgiving them. The final chapter, we'll put it in our bags, is Psalm number 110. Now this is quoted both by Paul and by Jesus Christ in different places. There are only seven verses in Psalm 110. Jesus used the first verse as a proof text that the Messiah was greater than David, and in so doing he confounded the the Pharisees and scribes that were trying to trap him in his words. And Paul uses the fourth verse to say that Jesus was a priest forever after the holy order of Melchizedek. Okay, so our bags are packed. We can now begin traveling the road of Hebrews chapter 7 through 13. And if you remember last time, we stopped most of the way through chapter 6. We're actually going to pick up the last part of chapter 6. And the best way for you to listen to this episode is to have these scriptures in front of you and maybe pause it as we go along and read what I'm talking about and take a minute to ponder it. But if you don't have the time or if you're driving, I'm going to go through it quickly and uh, hopefully this will sink in by osmosis, but I'm going to cover quite a bit of Uh, ideas. I'm going to go quickly through ideas that are complicated and involved and cover a wide variety of topics. So good luck. Uh, So here we are in in Hebrews chapter 6, and verses 13 through 17 are really what I want to pick up from this, which is God's promise to Abraham. And God gave his covenant to Abraham that he would, number one, give him certain lands and meaning the land of Canaan, and that he would have a great posterity, and through that posterity, all the people of the earth would be blessed. This was the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, here in Hebrews 6, 13 through 17, God describes this covenant, and he's saying, God couldn't swear by anyone greater. Uh, Remember, uh, Paul has already made this comparison between Aaron and Melchizedek, saying the Melchizedek priesthood must be greater than the Aaronic priesthood, because uh, Abraham, the, the, the ancestor of Aaron, 
actually gave tithes to Melchizedek. Melchizedek didn't receive his priesthood. Through his lineage, he, he had neither beginning of days nor end of years nor genealogy as it describes. So Melchizedek was a priest forever. And uh, not in, unlike the way in which the priests of the temple that would later come, unlike the way they received their priesthood, Melchizedek had his priesthood forever. And in Psalm, in the 110th Psalm, it describes the Melchizedek priesthood not just as the power that was, or the authority that was given to one man, but it describes it as an order. And thus, the, the Aaronic priesthood was already understood to be an order. It was a, a repeating thing that would happen generation after generation. Men would be given this priesthood. And in Psalm 110, that's the evidence we have, that the Melchizedek priesthood was also an order. It was uh, not just the authority given to one person, but a kind of authority that could be repeatedly given. And Jesus Christ then was called a high priest after this order, the order of Melchizedek, in which you didn't have to have the lineage of Aaron, that you didn't have to be of the tribe of Levi, which the priests of the temple did, in order to be a priest, of Melchizedek. Now, the reason this is important, remember, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says, I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. That's interesting because Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. So the new covenant, according to Jeremiah, would not only come to the entire people of Israel, but it would come through Judah rather than through Aaron. Now, what these verses make clear is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ came with an oath Paul describes the, the priesthood of Aaron as coming without an oath, but he describes the priesthood of Melchizedek as coming with an oath from God. God makes a promise, and thereby he makes a covenant. With, so an oath and covenant accompanies the greater priesthood. This, is, this would later be expanded upon and explicitly defined by Joseph Smith, but the idea is very clearly here in Hebrews that there is an oath and covenant that accompanies the Melchizedek priesthood. In chapter 7, we read more about the greatness of Melchizedek. So I've, I've described a little bit about why Paul thought he was so amazing, the fact that his priesthood came through righteousness rather than through lineage. And he is definitely and obviously greater from the scriptural account than Aaron because Aaron was still in his father's loins, as he puts it, when... when uh, Abraham paid his tithes to Melchizedek. And so the fact that Melchizedek is senior, the fact that he didn't receive his priesthood through lineage but through righteousness are reasons why his order is greater and why Jesus Christ would appropriately come have, receive his priesthood in that order as it's described. Thou art a priest forever after the holy order of Melchizedek. Now, in, uh, So that's verses 1 through 10. In verses 11 through 18 of chapter 7, Paul, just, Paul explains there is a need. We do have a need for a second priesthood because we know, first of all, we know there is a second priesthood. And it's, it's prophesied in Psalm 110. And why would there be a need for a second priesthood if the first priesthood, if the Aaronic priesthood, made anyone perfect? Now, perfect in the way that he's describing here, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, he says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? This is a very good question. Why would we need any sort of other priest as, as is prophesied in Psalm 110? Now, perfection here. The word here is teleosis. 
You remember we've talked many times about the telos or the purpose that would make us fulfilled. This is perfect as Jesus described it, right? It doesn't mean that we're flawless. It means that we fulfilled our purpose. If you remember the telescope analogy we used last time for the first part of the book of Hebrews. Now, teleosis is a little different. Teleosis is the, the realization or the fulfillment of all things. It's, it's the state of being in that completed condition. So if our telos is our purpose, teleosis is, describes what we have once we reach that purpose. So the word here used is perfection. The only other place this word teleosis is used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 1, verse 45. So Paul makes this clear, but Luke, the correspondence of this with Luke makes it even more clear. Now, when Mary goes to talk to Elizabeth, her baby leaps within her, and she says, Verily, you'll be blessed by the completion or the, by, by the performance of all of God's promises. And performance is the word that is translated from teleosis. So when God keeps all of his promises, or in other words, when there is a performance of God's oath and covenant, then you, Mary, will be blessed. The perfection comes when God keeps his covenant, and God keeps his covenant when we're faithful to it. So perfection in, as will, anytime you hear the word perfect throughout the lesson today, think of that idea that perfection is gained once God keeps his covenants to us. Now remember, that covenant is, the new covenant, as Jeremiah described it, is that God will change us and he will write the law in our hearts and then he'll forgive our sins. So as we qualify for this blessing, then we're made perfect in the definition used in the New Testament. So that's the perfection described, and that's our teleosis uh, here in chapter 7 of Hebrews. In verses 20 through 28, Paul describes why the Melchizedek priesthood is superior and why our high priest, Jesus, in the Melchizedek priesthood, is superior to the Aaronic priesthood high priests. Now remember, the high priest was that one person, that one man who had the privilege of worshiping uh, and going into the the Holy of Holies, none of the other priests have that privilege. And what Paul describes is, first thing that that high priest had to do was sacrifice for his own sins, and then he could sacrifice for the sins of the people. Not only that, but he had to keep repeating the sacrifice day after day, and in, in the case of the Day of Atonement, year after year. So some of these sacrifices were daily, some of the sacrifices were yearly, but the point is they had to be continuously repeated because the priest wasn't perfect and the sacrifice wasn't perfect. It wasn't the blood of a lamb that actually forgave sins. Uh, and the priesthood, so in addition to all these ways in which the Melchizedek priesthood is greater, also it comes with an oath, and the Aaronic priesthood did not. So that's chapter 7. Moving on to chapter 8. Verses 1 through 6 now describe the superiority of the new covenant described in Jeremiah 31 through 34. And he's about, he's introducing those verses that we read. He's about to quote them in their entirety, and that's verses 7 through 12 of chapter 8. So in verses 1 through 6, Paul describes that the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple is simply a shadow. I'm going to read verse 2 to you. A minister is describing Jesus Christ. We have a high priest, and, and he is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. 
So he pitched it like a tent, right? So God created the true tabernacle. And what is that true tabernacle? If you were, if you were listening last time, uh, I described it in detail, but I'll, I'll briefly go through it again. It's basically the idea that our earthly temples, whether it's in the, in the Old Testament or the New Testament or modern uh, Latter-day Saint temples, our temples are simply a reflection of an eternal truth. And that eternal truth is this, that Jesus Christ paved the way for us to return to God. And we need some sort of representation, a physical, tangible building, and also a, a ceremony, a ritual that demonstrates how this happened. But none of those things are actually what save us. The true tabernacle is the actual action that Jesus Christ performed that saved us. And in that true tabernacle, Jesus is the high priest. He's like the high priest who travels through, who makes the journey through the earthly temple, but he's actually the high priest once and for all that in the true tabernacle traveled from the outside, uh, the altar outside out from the temple, through the temple and into the Holy of Holies. But not only did Jesus do that, he brought us, he opened the way for us to accompany him. Now, the, the difference between the high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood, Jesus, and the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood was that Jesus, the, the high priest of the Aaronic priesthood, would never let anyone come with him. There was only one person who could make that journey. But as Paul describes a little bit later, Jesus Christ opened the way that we could all accompany him into the sanctuary. Then, Jesus, then Paul quotes uh, this, this chapter, for this passage from Jeremiah 31. And then after that, he says, this has now been fulfilled. The, the fact that we have a new covenant means that the old covenant is done away. We're now living in the time of the new covenant foretold by Jeremiah. So Paul found his justification. He wasn't departing from the Hebrew scriptures. In his mind, he was thinking, wow, it's not that we're rejecting the Hebrew scriptures. We're actually fulfilling them. Here is the promise that one day there would be a new covenant. And the fact that we're living under a new covenant means the old one does not have the same importance that it once did. The first part of chapter 9 is Paul going through a description of the tabernacle and will briefly review it. The first thing is, outside the tabernacle, there's an altar where sacrifices are performed. And then there's a veil, and there's what's called here the first sanctuary, which is also in other places called the holy place. And in there he describes there's a candlestick and a table and there's shoe bread and there, there are various representations of different spiritual truths. And many priests would enter the sanctuary or the holy place through that first veil and that's where they served every day. And, uh, and in verse 3 Paul says, After the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which is elsewhere called the holy, holy of holies, uh, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Meaning he wished he had more time to describe more about the temple, but this is all we have time to talk about. That's true also for us today. So, uh, he, d- he does a pretty good job of describing what's in the holy place and the holy of holies. But the, the important thing to remember is there are two veils. There's an altar. There is, there's a veil, a holy place, another veil, a holy of holies. And priests can go into the, to the altar, to the holy place. High priest can go all the way to the holy of holies. And that's where forgiveness occurs. The blood of the lamb is carried yearly on the day of atonement. 
through this journey into the Holy of Holies. And we travel from our telestial existence where the altar is into a terrestrial existence, the Garden of Eden imagery, where the holy, the holy place is, and then into the celestial kingdom where the Holy of Holies is. The mercy seat was the legendary dwelling place of God when he was on the earth above the Ark of the Covenant. In verse 7, Paul says, But into the second, meaning the second tabernacle or the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now, he says uh, the fact that the, this temple, this day of atonement was necessary, it meant that the Holy Ghost, the way into the holiest of all, in the true tabernacle, that tabernacle in heaven, it was not yet made manifest because this, this temple, this earthly temple, was still standing. And in verse 10, Paul describes the, this uh, former temple as uh, an observance of meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ being come, an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the puring of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more will that purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now remember, the fulfillment of God's promises is how we become perfect. And here's, here's something that uh, he's about to say that's very interesting. Where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, this verse is often misunderstood, that where there's a, t- instead of testament, we in our minds substitute the word testimony. In other words, we think what this verse is saying is, there's a prophet bearing testimony of the truth, there must of necessity be a death of that prophet before his, the truth of his words is actually borne witness to. That's not what Paul means. Testament here is actually in its modern sense. The way we use the word testament today is a will and test. This is my last will and testament. And what he's saying is a will is no good while someone's alive. If, if I make a will, then it doesn't actually bequeath my goods to my heirs until after I'm dead. And so the new, this is in the difference between the word testament and the word covenant. A testament comprehends both a will and a covenant. So this is, this is like saying that the new covenant that is spoken of by Jeremiah is actually Jesus Christ's will. He leaves to us the same salvation that he went while he was alive, only he owned, only that pertained only to him. But once he died, he was able to bequeath it all to us. So the new covenant also became a new testament through the will of Christ. And Paul gets more explicit about this. In verse 17, he says, For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. So in other words, the covenant of Moses also didn't, didn't bequeath its blessings upon us without the death of the animals that were used in sacrifice. And he describes how the blood that was used in those sacrifices purified the people of Israel by sprinkling 
And then he says in verse 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then he must have he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. Or in other words, he would have been performing his atonement every day, every year. He must have been suffering. If, if Christ's sacrifice was like the sacrifice of the Old Testament, he would have been suffering all the time. But he says in verse 26, But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In verse 28, Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Chapters 8 and 9 are two wonderful chapters that describe Jesus Christ as and the temple. It, it shows that Paul had an absolutely perfect understanding of God's purpose in founding the tabernacle and the temple in the first place, which was a way to teach us. This is, this is not an idea of modern revelation alone. Paul understood this very well, that the temple was a way to point us unto Jesus Christ and make us understand that God had a way to bring us salvation through blood and through sacrifice, but that the temple was only a symbol, or as Paul calls it, a shadow. So now we're in chapter 10, verse 1. The law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Now perfect, remember, it can't actually complete the promises of God. Now what it, what is, how does he explain this? How do we know this is true? For then... Would, would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins? And in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. This is obvious. So it was a symbol of something that would actually take away sins, which was, which was the grace of God. So what he's saying is we can't be made perfect by these sacrifices that were performed under the laws of Moses. We, the, the fulfillment of God's promises, which is, as he's already said, the, the forgiveness of our sins, that fulfillment, that perfection cannot be attained through the, this law of carnal ordinances and of earthly symbols of things that are heavenly. Now Paul quotes the 40th Psalm in verses 5 through 7 and basically explains that God wanted his Messiah more than he wanted the sacrifice of blood and burnt offerings of the temple, God wanted his Messiah to do his will. And this was this was a better kind of sacrifice. Incidentally, unless I'm mistaken, I read somewhere that the, the book of Psalms is the most quoted book of any book in the Old Testament in the New. And uh, that's fascinating. And Paul certainly uh, is an example of that here in the book of Hebrews. He quotes Psalms more than any other single book. Before we go any farther, there's one thing we should have added to our baggage. You, you may or may not know what the Septuagint is. Now, the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and the word Septuagint means 70. The legend was that 70 translators were commissioned to do this work, and uh, somewhere maybe 200, 300 years before Christ, and they, all of them, came up with exactly, word for word, the same text in the target language, which was Greek. 
the chances of that actually being true are so infinitesimal that if you were to play darts with those odds, it would be like uh, hitting a bullseye by dropping a dart from a supersonic jet that you were flying with a blindfold, and all you knew about the dartboard was that it was on the ground somewhere in mainland China. And then hitting a second bullseye with the, with the dartboard being moved, and you drop, this time you drop the dart from a unicycle. So this is not... This is not something that actually happened. They didn't actually, 70 translators didn't actually come up with the same text. But that's the legend. And the this is the Septuagint. And the Septuagint contained books that uh, the, the surviving Hebrew manuscript did not. And that's why we have what's called the Apocrypha. So the Apocryphal books, or the Deuterocanonical books, the second canon, these are books that are contained in the Greek version of the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew. Now, the Catholics adopted this Greek Bible, and that's the source of the Catholic Old Testament. And the Protestants, somewhere in the 1500s, decided that they were going to go with only those books that were contained in the Hebrew manuscripts that had survived. And that's how we have uh, the, the Protestant Old Testament, including the King James Version. But Paul is using the Septuagint. This, this is the scriptures, and, uh, and there's a lot of evidence. In fact, uh, somewhere around 90% of the New Testament quotations of the Old come from the Septuagint. In other words, uh, Jesus and other Jews, their Hebrew scriptures were actually possibly in Greek. Another possibility is that Jesus was quoting from actual Hebrew scriptures, and when the time came to write the New Testament in Greek, uh, the writers of the Gospels and the writers of the Epistles they took what they knew, the scriptures that they knew Jesus had quoted, and uh, reconstructed those quotations from the Septuagint. So, a couple of possibilities there. So, anyway, that's what the Septuagint is. It's a Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. And if you compare this quotation here in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, to Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 through 8, you'll notice some differences. And that's because Paul is using a different translation of the Old Testament than we are. And Paul goes on to explain that quotation and then say again that Jesus sacrificed once, replacing priests who had to sacrifice repeatedly. And then he repeats a reference to the 110th Psalm. uh, the, The Lord said to my Lord, this is David talking in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, I will make thy enemies thy footstool. Right, sit thou at my right hand, and Jesus quoted this as well, and uh, Paul quoted it in uh, Hebrews chapter one, and he quotes it again here in Hebrews chapter ten. Thy enemies shall be thy footstool. He's talking about the Messiah, this King of David's line that will eventually come. He will make his enemies his footstool. This is how we knew that the the Messiah was also the Son of God. This is Christ using used this text to prove that the Messiah was greater than David from whose line he came. And then in verses 14 through 18, Paul repeats this quotation from Jeremiah. And then 19 through 22, this is, this is very interesting. I hinted at this idea earlier, but now it's Paul teaching explicitly, because Jesus Christ entered the holy, quote-unquote, the holy of holies of the true tabernacle, in other words, the actual presence of God, not the symbolic presence of God, because Jesus entered then, there, we can have boldness to enter into the holiest. In verse 19, it's called the holiest, but it means the holy of holies. Because Jesus went there, we can go there. 
And in verse 20, he says, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, which is to say his flesh. Now, the way this verse reads, it sounds like Paul is saying the veil is the flesh of Christ. But what he's actually saying is uh, a new and living way, which is to say his flesh. And, and uh, so the body of Christ is the way through the veil. Now, remember, uh, there are two veils. I want you to I want you to think about this. This is a this is not explicitly stated by Paul, but it's something that he it's almost conspicuously absent enough that it is strongly hinted at. Uh, there's the the way through the first veil into that tabernacle or into that first sanctuary, as he called the holy place, is the flesh or the body of Christ, and he leaves un, unspoken what the way through the second veil is. So think about that. There are two veils in the temple. And there are two halves of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, the atonement was the, the name given to the day in which the, the priest, the high priest, would make this journey through the temple all the way into the Holy of Holies. And, and here Paul uses that same word to describe the process of Jesus traveling for, for us through the two veils that separate us from God, death and sin. It's so interesting. This is... This is this is actually where we get our doctorate in understanding the atonement, is the book of Hebrews. If we can fully study and understand what Paul is teaching here, we'll really go a lot deeper than anywhere else, I think, anywhere else in the entire New Testament in understanding what Jesus did for us. And in verse 22, and in, in all of these verses, we have an echo of those first six verses in chapter 8, where... Uh, basically, Paul gives us some of the most compelling language to believe in Jesus anywhere in Scripture. I'm going to read verse 22 of Hebrews 10 for you. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here he's pulling. This is subtext. He's not explicitly quoting Ezekiel 36. We had to pack that in our bags before we got here, or we would have been totally unaware of what he was talking about. But now we understand he's sprinkling us with this pure water, the water of separation, and he's making us ritually pure so that we can enter the temple, and then he is drawing us into the Holy of Holies by his own blood. So he's sprinkling us with water and with blood, and then he, with his body, he is drawing us through the first veil, and with his blood and with pure water, he's drawing us through the second veil. So the Jews of Paul's time who are reading this, this epistle or this, this treatise to the Hebrews, they have thousands of years of history with the temple which, in which probably 99.9% of the people who entered it had no idea what the meaning of all these symbols was. But now all this meaning comes home to them, and it's so irrefutably true that now they fully understand Jesus Christ. This is Paul using the temple as an object lesson to get through the, the truth of the atonement and the plan of salvation in a way that is so unmistakable and so powerful that it enters deeply into the hearts of anyone reading, as long as they've been as steeped as Paul was in the doctrine of the Old Testament and in the scriptures as they were available at that time. Now in verses 23 through 34, Paul does something that he's done many times throughout the book of Hebrews, which is... Uh, he compare, first, he's made a comparison between Jesus Christ or the New Testament and the Old, the New Covenant and the Old, the New Ideas and the Old, the true tabernacle and the earthly tabernacle. And, and then it fo he follows it with a warning, which is if, if 
people were lost for not listening to Moses, how much more lost, lost will we be for not listening to Jesus Christ? And now he's saying, since you've been saved, this is verses 23 through 34 of Hebrews 10, since you've been saved, don't turn away. Uh, and and this, this actually sounds harsher than it is. What he seems to be saying is, if you turn away after being saved by Jesus Christ, you will never be able to repent. What he's actually saying is, if you turn away and stay turned away, this is a message similar to uh, what Alma and Amulet talk in the 11th chapter of Alma. In verse 34 specifically, God can't save you in your sins. He can only save you from your sins. In other words, when you turn away from your sins, that's the only time he can save you. Uh, And verse 35, we have this important word, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Your confidence in God We'll, we'll learn about this now in just a couple of verses. We'll learn what confidence in God's uh, promises can do for us. So don't cast away your faith, because if you have confidence in God's promises, then he can make you perfect. When he completes his, his covenants, that's when you're made perfect. Uh, there's, a, there's a talk with this title. It's often confused for a general conference address. But it's not. It's from a BYU devotional in March 1999 by Jeffrey R. Holland called Cast Not Away Therefore Your Confidence. And it, uh, it talks about how Joseph Smith experienced this terrible resistance right before he had the first vision. And Moses also. He had a, he had a vision of God, and then he was immediately confronted by Satan. It talks about how we, when we have first a spiritual experience and then we meet with resistance, Uh, how we shouldn't cast away our confidence. I'm going to read one paragraph from this talk. talk. He's talking now about the very chapter we're reading. Paul pleaded with those new members in much the same way President Gordon B. Hinckley is pleading with new members today. The reminder is that we cannot sign on for a battle of such eternal significance and everlasting consequence without knowing it will be a fight, a good fight and a winning fight, but a fight nevertheless. Paul says to those who thought a new testimony, a personal conversion, a spiritual baptismal experience would put them beyond trouble. To these, he says, call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Then this tremendous counsel, which is at the heart of my counsel to you, cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. In Latter-day Saint talk, that is to say, sure, it is tough. Before you join the church, while you are trying to join and after you have joined. That's the way it has always been, Paul says, but don't draw back. Don't panic and retreat. Don't lose your confidence. Don't forget how you once felt. Don't distrust the experience you had. That tenacity is what saved Moses and Joseph Smith when the adversary confronted them, and it is what will save you. Finally, in verses 36 through 39, uh, Paul, Paul says, in effect, Uh, He sets up chapter 11 by talking about two quotes from the Old Testament, Isaiah 26 and Habakkuk uh, chapter 2. Uh, The first one is the idea that God will visit his people and not delay. And secondly, that God takes no pleasure in the person who shrinks back, as, as Elder Holland was talking about, but in the one who lives by faith. And then we begin this marvelous chapter on faith. And entire books have been written on chapter 11. And entire careers have been devoted to the book of Hebrews, and so that's why it's so intimidating for us to try to get through all of it now, but um, we'll do the best we can, and the, the 
First of all, let's talk about some general statements that are made about faith. In verse 1, uh, Paul starts right out by saying, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, right there in the first verse, we have this paradox. And a paradox are two different ideas, both of which cannot be true at the same time, but somehow they are. Uh, and now, the, what's the paradox? The, the evidence of things not seen does not exist. If something isn't seen, then we have no evidence. Now, what's the other side of the paradox? That's in verse 6. He says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So in other words, for, in order for us to become perfect, for us to uh, receive these blessings, we have to believe first that God is a rewarder. And uh, in verse 1, we have that, that the evidence of things not seen is faith. So before we can believe in God, we have to have faith. But before we can have faith, we have to have this evidence of things not seen. It's an amazing way of describing this paradox, calling faith the evidence of things not seen. It's very powerful that, that Paul, instead of just telling us what to believe, would actually set up this paradox. And what a paradox does is it forces you to contemplate and to ponder both sides of the question until you can find a resolution. Uh, the, for me, the resolution, we hinted at it, or we, we actually talked about it at length last week. And it's this talk by L. Whitney Clayton from the conference of April 2015, the talk called Choose to Believe. And in this talk, he describes that we will, a lot of us want to be forced to believe or to accidentally believe. We think that the way belief works is it's something we stumble into, and then we can use that to get where we need to go. And what uh, Elder Clayton says is that we will no more accidentally believe than we'll accidentally pray or pay our tithing. And once he puts it that way, it becomes obviously true. We cannot accidentally have faith. Now, if you want proof of that idea, all you have to do is read chapter 11. I wish we could read the entire thing. It certainly is worthy of being read in its entirety. But I leave this for your homework, and it is homework you better do, because this is one of the most beautiful and important chapters in all of Scripture. And not only that, it's one of the greatest achievements in world literature. This chapter is in the form of an example list, and that is an actual ancient literary form. And one of the important things I want to point out, we're going to skip over uh, a lot of the examples here in chapter 11, unfortunately, but we just don't have time. But one of the things I want to point out is almost all of the people that are described in chapter 11 are the most flawed people in the Old Testament. So as we read this chapter, all of us think, wow, these were great people. It's impossible for me to have faith like them. How could I possibly have faith like Abraham? How could I possibly have faith like Joseph? How could I possibly have faith like some of these people? And then we realize, wow, wait a minute, uh, David, <laughs> what's going on here? Samson? These are people that had all kinds of problems with their faith. And so why would Paul list these people? Uh, noticeably absent are Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. Uh, and Joseph here is mentioned, his faith. Remember, uh, Joseph was the one who refused to have sexual immorality in his life. He was the one who refused to lose hope, even when he was in prison for years, even when he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. The example given of Joseph's faith is simply that he asked for his bones to be removed 
from Egypt when the children of Israel eventually went to the land of Canaan. The point there is, he was so sure that God's promises would be fulfilled that he made plans for his bones to be removed. So it wasn't his greatest moment. It was just a simple expression of his belief in God's promises. Uh, Other places, Abraham, what do we know about Abraham? Abraham lied twice about his wife being his sister. Sarah laughed when she was told that she would eventually be uh, bear a child at her at 90 years of age. And also Abraham didn't believe it when he was told. Uh, Jacob was a, decep- a deceiver. His name actually means the deceiver. And he deceived his father in order to receive the birthright of his brother Esau. Moses is called by many Bible scholars a murderer because he killed an Egyptian. We don't know exactly whether he killed that Egyptian in uh, defense of another person or whether he killed him in cold blood, but we know that he killed him and buried the body in the sand and then fled the country. And Moses also took credit for the miracle, one of the miracles of God when he struck the stone with his, his staff and water came forth from it. So all of these people, not, not every single one, but they're, most of these people have very negative or troublesome episodes in their lives, and yet they're included here in Paul's list of the most faithful. The point of it is that it wasn't their greatness that gave value to their faith. It was their great faith that made them notable in the first place. It was the fact that they trusted the promises of God in spite of the doubts, in spite of the difficulties, in spite of their flaws, in spite of their sins, in spite of their imperfections. They trusted the promises of God and acted accordingly. And then later on, they saw those promises appear. Not totally, right? Not during their lifetimes. They looked forward for those promises. And the the most important promise that they all looked forward to having come to pass was the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul makes all of that clear at the very end. Uh, I want to draw attention. So please read chapter 11. And I wish I could do it more justice. But I want to draw attention to one particular verse. And I want to uh, make you aware of a video that I found very interesting on, on uh, YouTube. I was lucky enough to find this. Because this is from uh, the BYU New Testament Commentary Conference, which occurred only a month ago. This is... Uh, So the ideas that I'm going to get about this particular verse are from a woman named Julie Smith, and her talk is called Women Received Their Dead. And uh, this is about a half an hour talk on just verse 35, and it's fascinating. I loved it. And so I'm going to to try to do a a good job of quickly giving you some of the main ideas from that talk. So verse 35 reads like this. Uh, First of all, um, in verse 32, after giving all of the examples of faith, Paul finally says, What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and David and Samuel and of the prophets, uh, who through faith did a bunch of things, right? So he says, I don't have any more time to give you more examples, but then he starts giving more examples. And in verse 35, he gives some of the most notable examples in the entire chapter. He says, through faith, or it's understood that he's talking about through faith. He says, women received their dead raised to life again. And uh, what Sister Smith, so the the next several ideas I'm going to give you are from Sister Smith. Now, what what women is he talking about? Uh, The women who received their dead. Now, if you are steeped, again, we have to have packed our bags in order to understand everything in the uh, book of Hebrews. Otherwise, we'll be switching back and forth too often between the Old and New Testaments. Women received 
their dead are almost certainly a reference to two women in particular, one from 1 Kings chapter 17. Now remember, Elijah had this experience with the widow where uh, he comes to her and she's about to make the last of her food for her son and then she says, die. And he says, don't. First make food for me and then make for yourself and your son. And here's the promise, the, your food won't fail. You'll have oil and you'll have meal and we'll survive on that. She acts in faith. She gives him the last of her food and then she discovers that she has a little bit more and then a little bit more. And they survive this way until the famine ends. And later on, her son dies. Now, this is interesting about this woman, this first woman. Later on, this same son that, that uh, she was willing to sacrifice to save Elijah, uh, th- this son dies, and Elijah brings him back to life. This woman received her dead. Here's an interesting point. It was only after Elijah raised her son from the dead that she says to him, now I know from this that you are a man of God and that you have God's word in your mouth, right? So isn't that fascinating? Because she was willing to give Elijah, she'd, she'd been given the message that she would entertain a man of God, and so she was willing to give him her food. But it was only after she, her son was brought back to life that she fully understood that Elijah was really a, God, a man of God. A similar experience uh, happened in the ministry of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. There was a woman who uh, provided services to uh, Elisha when he traveled. She had a little room set aside for him, and she and her husband would put him up every time he was on the road. And uh, eventually he said to her, what service can I do for you? And uh, he heard that she was barren. He said, you, you will have a son. And she said, look, don't don't deceive me. That's, that's something we don't play around with. But sure enough, a year later, she had a son, and then her son died. And the first thing she did was search for Elijah or Elisha and go on a journey to find him. And he ran back to her home and brought her son back to life. This woman also received her dead after the trial of her faith. She first accepted a prophet and then later received a great blessing. And, and when the remember the idea that's running through the entire book of Hebrews is that when the covenants of God are kept and when we make an when God makes an oath to us and then the covenant of God is fulfilled that's the occurrence by which we are made perfect and so these women by receiving their dead they're being perfected and perfected in the in the new testament sense right they're being put into a state of teleosis but in a broader sense, so we can first recognize that these two women from the book of Kings are the subject of this, women receive their dead. But in a broader sense, uh, the, the point that Sister Smith makes is that every instance in the scriptures, and she goes through some of the possible counterexamples and how she doesn't think they're actually counterexamples, but uh, every time in the scriptures in which someone is brought back to life, the witnesses to it are either partially or solely women. And the most notable example is obviously when Jesus Christ is resurrected, it's the women at the tomb who first bear witness to his resurrected body. But think about Martha and Mary and the, the revival of Lazarus, right? So every other example in the scriptures of somebody being raised back to life is simply them being brought back into an earthly form of existence. And uh, that's why at the end of verse 35, Paul describes a better resurrection. He's saying there is a lesser resurrection, which is just being brought back to life. But some women were tortured, and they, and they didn't accept deliverance from their torture. 
They wanted to obtain a better resurrection. They didn't want to just have life. They didn't want to just be brought back to life. They wanted to be uh, raised from the dead the way Christ raised himself from the dead in a better resurrection. This is the first uh, indication we have, by the way, that there's an understanding that being brought back to life is not the same thing as resurrection. Obviously, that's clear from the resurrection of Christ. He would not return to die again. And if you thought about it, that this would be clear of, of the people who were brought back to life, that they would eventually die again. And yet it's never explicitly said, stated. Uh, the, the revival of many of the people that are brought back to life in the scriptures is, is called elsewhere a resurrection. This is Paul differentiating that explicitly for the first time. Now, uh, when he says, when Paul says in verse 35, others were tortured not accepting deliverance, this is possibly a reference to one of these apocryphal or deuterocanonical books from the Septuagint. He is probably referring to the book of 2 Maccabees, chapter 6. In verse 10 forward, we have uh, the example of two women who are arrested and killed for circumcising their children. Uh, and in the book of 4th Maccabees, it says uh, the, the, the women were tortured, not accepting deliverance. The, in 4th Maccabees chapter 15, we have this terrible story of, uh, and actually, actually the, the chapters preceding it as well, of seven brothers who were killed in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is this terrible uh, governor over the land of, of Israel when it was illegal to be an observant Jew. And he forced them to either eat uh, unclean food or to be tortured in, to death. And these seven brothers were tortured in front of each other, one after the other. And each of them encouraged the one who was being tortured to hold fast to his faith, rather than to give in and say, please don't kill my brother or I'll eat your food. And the woman, the, the mother of all seven of these brothers, had to watch it happen. And instead of telling her sons, go against what you believe, uh, break your covenants, forsake your religion so that you can save your life. What it says here is they were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. So that's just one verse. Um, and Sister Smith, a very knowledgeable scripture scholar, she spent a half an hour talking on just this one verse. Uh, another point that she made was that the testimony of women in Old Testament times and New Testament times was considered universally considered to be less than that of men. And one of the, the very fascinating effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was that the, the main and the first witnesses of it were women. And so in order to be a Christian at all, of necessity, you had to accept the testimony of women. And though Paul doesn't state this explicitly, his main message is always about Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. So the point that she made was, to be a Christian means that you accept the testimony of women to be equal to that of men, that you can't be a Christian without accepting this testimony. I think it was a wonderful insight. Now in verses 36 through 38, very quickly, Paul goes through a lot of examples of what, what happened to people who had faith without giving names. And it's only if we've packed our bags sufficiently with stories from the Old Testament that we'll know what he's talking about. Others had trial of cruel mocking, mockings and scourgings, of bonds and imprisonment, possibly Jeremiah. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. That's the legend of what happened with 
Isaiah, he was running from those who were uh, pursuing him to kill him, and he, and he hid in a hollow tree, and they found him, trapped him in the tree, and sawed it in half. That's, that's not actually scriptural. That's just a legend of how Isaiah died. Uh, they were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, possible, possible uh, reference to John the Baptist and Elijah. Uh, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Uh, they stopped the mouths of lions, as he says in verse 33, uh, a possible reference to Daniel. So the, the, many of the New Testament, or the, I'm sorry, the Old Testament prophets are mentioned here by reference to their story rather than their name. And then finally, what Paul says at the end is, these all, having a, obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. In other words, God's covenant to them was not fulfilled. What promise is he talking about? The promise is the promise of Jeremiah, the new covenant that Jeremiah would establish. This is not made clear exactly here. Most people don't understand this. They received not the promise. God, verse 40 of of Hebrews 11, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, what this means is they didn't, not that they needed us to be made perfect, and by us I mean the, the Christians of Paul's time, but that uh, they, they could not be made perfect. They could not receive the fulfillment of the promises of God, or as Elizabeth put it to Mary, the performance of God's promises could not occur except in the company of those who lived at Paul's time. It wasn't until Christ performed his atonement that they would be made perfect and that they would have the performance of all of God's covenants. Now, Joseph Smith would later come to expand on this idea that they without us should not be made perfect in the 128th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 18, when he talks about us working for our dead. They without us, neither they without us can be made perfect, nor we without them can be made perfect. It's a different idea. And it's, it's uh, used, what he's talking about is a different principle, but the, the underlying foundation is the same. What Paul is saying is that the people of the Old Testament could not receive their fi- the fulfillment of their covenants until the atonement of Jesus Christ. And what Joseph Smith is saying is it's only the work for the dead that can occur because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will perfect both us and our ancestors. So it's a variation on a theme using similar words. As much as I hate to leave chapter 11 behind, uh, moving on to chapter 12, I'm going to read you two verses here. Seeing as we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Once again, Paul uses a race metaphor to uh, symbolize our spiritual journey in this life. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is him repeating the image of Jesus as the high priest. Finisher of our faith actually means, that the word, the root word here, again, is telos or, te- or teleosis, the perfecter of our faith. So when Jesus has done his work, not only does he create our faith, but he makes it perfect by fulfilling his covenants. Now, Paul goes on to teach a powerful lesson 
in verses 2 through 6, he talks about the things that Jesus endured and then says, we need to accept the Lord's chastening. In verses 7 through 11, he says, chastening is the way of learning. Now, this is basically Paul saying God's whole purpose is to get us not to be defensive when life presents us with some correction. Chastening is what a father does to a child, and it's the way that we have to receive learning from God. Uh, you might remember this from the from there's a notable scripture that we have to be we have to put off the natural man and submit to God, even as a child submits to his father, from the address of King Benjamin in the book of Mosiah chapter three. Now uh, the point is that when we endure chastening, as it says in verse seven, God dealeth with with us as with sons. In other words, with heirs to His kingdom. We're not servants like Moses was. We're sons like Jesus Christ is in His kingdom, in His house. In verse eleven, I'm going to read it to you. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, if we're able to hear it when we receive correction, it's always difficult to hear in the moment, but it's the only way in which we can actually improve ourselves. So if you understand what it means to be defensive, it's when somebody tells you something you're doing wrong, rather than argue against them and say, well, you know, the rules didn't apply to me in this situation, or, you know, I'm actually a special case because of this, or let me explain to you what I was thinking, it's not what you're thinking, right? This is defensiveness. And what Paul is saying is, look, it's chastening that you're receiving, and it, it's never pleasant, but it's grievous. But afterwards, it's, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If, you're, if you can be exercised by it, in other words, if you're humble enough to let it change your behavior. Now he says, so lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Now this is a, this is a phrase that is used several times. Um, it's used in Isaiah chapter 35. It's used in Job chapter 4. And it's also quoted later in the Doctrine and Covenants. Lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Paul is saying, strengthen yourselves. Make straight paths for your feet in verse 13. These two verses are him saying, learn not to be defensive. Don't put obstacles in your path, but make a straight path so you don't have to go around the obstacles that are going to come up when you're not humble enough to accept correction, both from God and from other people that God might inspire to give you a message that is intended just for you. And other people, in verse 13, when you see other people, you've got to be generous to them because they might be going through a similar chastening. And you've got to recognize that the, the difficulty that they're presenting in your life might be a result of the challenges that God has put in theirs. And therefore, we have to be generous and patient with them as Christ is generous and patient with us. The final message of chapter 12 is uh, a, a parallel between Mount Sinai, two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, when there's a, there's a particular passage in Exodus chapter 19, when, when Moses goes up into the mountain, it's forbidden for any of the Israelites to even set foot on it, or they'll be shot with an arrow. If an animal walks on it, they shoot it. It's death to go on Mount Sinai during this time. And what uh, Paul says in verse 22 through 24 is, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So Mount Sinai, you would be killed for going on to it. Only Moses is allowed. It's where we received a covenant of the, of the old priesthood, the lesser priesthood and the Old Testament. But Mount Zion that Christ has given us access to, we're all welcome there. And the wonderful things that await us almost defy description because of Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. We don't have to be perfect now. We can be just men, and we're made perfect because God will forgive our sins. That's the promise of Jeremiah, that he will change us, not because of what we did, but because he forgives our sins. We will have his law written in our hearts, and we will know the Lord. So the end of this chapter is uh, Paul saying, don't ignore God's voice. It's more evident now than ever. The final chapter, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 8 are, are exhortations regarding brotherly love, hospitality, sexual purity, faith. And then in, uh, in verses 9 and 10, he says, don't be deceived by strange doctrine, right? The, we talked about all of the doctrines that were coming in. You have to be of the circumcision or Greek Gnosticism mixing, mixing with Christianity. Don't be deceived by any of those things. But then verses 11 through 16, he goes back again into the lessons that he's been teaching throughout the book of Hebrews. And he gives another parallel to Jesus in the temple. The body of the lamb... Okay, so the, the lamb is used for this sacrifice in which, on the Day of Atonement, in which the blood would be used to forgive all, not only the high priest himself, but all of Israel. It was carried into the Holy of Holies. But what happens to the body of the lamb after this is done? It's put outside the camp. And then he said, uh, I'm going to read this for you. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. In other words, Jesus was sacrificed on Calvary's hill outside the city walls. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. In other words, let's leave behind the cities of the world. The, the, let's join Jesus outside the city walls, and, we'll, and let's despise earthly glory for heaven. Let praise for God and generosity to others, let that be our sacrifice. He says, uh, we have, here we have no continuing city. In other words, an earthly glory is not worth, is not something that's going to last. But we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually and to be generous to others. So that's the sacrifice that he wants, is for us to give thanks to God's name and to praise him and then to be good to each other. And that's the way that we leave the city and we join Christ outside the walls and we despise earthly glory. Now to reiterate the message that runs through the entire book of Hebrews, it's this, that the promise of God is found in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah that he is going to write the law on our hearts, and he's going to change us. He's going to give us a new covenant that this time Israel, modern Israel, will not fail to keep, but will actually perform in because God is going to first perform his oath and covenant, which is to forgive our sins. And when he does that, that is the way in which we will be made perfect. Paul completes this final chapter in Hebrews and final in our New Testament of his epistles, with an apostolic blessing in verses 20 and 21. 
Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And just remember that that phrase, make you perfect, means may God keep his covenant to you. And may, in other words, may he forgive your sins. The covenant is that he will forgive your sins. I'm going to read this one more time in the New International Version. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.